Well, Penny, I know what I want to happen with my body when it's my time. (laughs) So are we going to learn what that is today? Uh, Yeah, we are. I'm going to be composted. A Couple of Dusty Muffins is brought to you by the Sabi Corporation, a company focused on changing the healthcare system from treating disease to promoting a healthy lifestyle. We've been waiting so long to talk to our guest today. I just can't wait. Hi, everyone. Welcome to A Couple of Dusty Muffins. I'm Penny Legate. I'm Julie Blacklow. And today we have a really, truly fascinating woman whose life is largely devoted to dealing with death, Laura Cassidy. Hey, Laura. Thanks for having me. You are working with Recompose, which is the first, I think, in Washington State or the country to deal with human composting. Let me help you with that. We were the world's first human composting funeral home. Oh, my gosh. I had no idea. The world's first. Wow. How did this begin? How did this get started, Laura? Yeah, let's jump in. So in 2011, our founder, Katrina Spade, was in architecture school and facing her senior thesis project and knowing she was going to have to do something cool and big and important for that. Uh, And at the same time, she had a couple of young toddlers at home. And apparently that makes one think of mortality from time to time. I've, I've checked this with a couple of friends with toddlers and they say, oh, yeah. When you have toddlers at home, you're thinking about mortality all the time. Right. So so if you think about kind of those sorts of thoughts, and then at at school, she's thinking about, okay, senior thesis, what am I going to do? And she decides to kind of use this material that is in her life at the moment and think about end-of-life care through the architecture lens. And sometimes I like to pause and say architecture school is not just a place where you go to you know, learn about building buildings, but it's a place where you're studying the built systems of, of humans and how we kind of create pathways and systems and spaces to move through. So just thinking about architecture in that in that more broad and general way. And, you know, Katrina is, is like a lifelong environmentalist, somebody who at that time in her life was really becoming to understand herself as an urbanist also, somebody who's planned to always live in cities and really interested in the health of cities as well. So using all of that together, she thought, let me see what can be reimagined in the realm of end-of-life care. Um, maybe again, we'll just pause and make sure that we're all kind of on the same page and understanding that the reason to reimagine things would be at that time existing systems with cremation and cemeteries. They're both unfortunately problematic in, in different yet similar ways. So, you know, with cremation has to do a lot with the harmful particulates that are released in the air. With cemeteries, it's a very resource-heavy process in several different ways. And we think about running out of room. We really don't have a lot of space left in our cemeteries. So again, it's making sure we're on that same page and thinking about why you would want to reimagine end-of-life care. And, and that got her going. She really was thinking, is there a way that we can bring this end-of-life care and the matter of disposition, you know, disposition being that word, how do we take care of the body after death? How can I bring that into a more controlled environment? And her big aha moment was when somebody told her that farmers have been composting their livestock for generations. So kind of light bulb goes on and she's thinking, okay, if you can compost a cow or a horse, you know, certainly you can compost a human. And I bet you can do that in a warehouse on the south side of town. And so that's kind of how the idea was born. 
Tell us how do you compost a body? What are the steps? It's very, very simple. It completely mimics what happens on the forest floor. Nature already knows how to do this, but it's also a very controlled process as well because we're not talking about pine needles. We're talking about people, you know? So it's got that kind of duality of like a very simple, natural process that is also, you know, regulated and controlled and watched. So we start with a mixture of wood chips, alfalfa, and straw. And those materials are, well, first they're dampened a little bit. Anybody that does kind of backyard composting knows compost has to be a little bit wet. So those materials are kind of dampened a bit. And then the individual is laid on top of those materials while wrapped in a shroud. And maybe a service would have immediately happened. And we can talk about that kind of thing when we get there. But speaking strictly of the process, the individual is is laid directly on top of that wood chips, alfalfa, and straw mixture. Kind of all in one moment, they sort of remove the shroud and place more of that plant material on top. So the person is like cocooned inside that plant material. And this all happens in a composting vessel, what we call a composting vessel. And so what does that look like? Is that like, I mean, when I think of a composting vessel, I think of like the ones you turn and you create, you know, you put your compost yeah. materials out there. So it looks like a long tube, doesn't it? I mean, I've it seen does. pictures. Yeah. Sometimes people use the word pod cylindrical kind of a vessel. Once the individual is there with the composting material placed on top, then the door is closed and that kind of sealed and contained environment again, contains the environment that is there on the forest floor. And in that little ecosystem inside there, what happens is the microorganisms that are in our body and on our body and the microorganisms that are in that plant material just start to go to work with each other. They connect, coalesce, and create this third thing, which is the compost that comes from the mixture. So almost immediately after the door is closed and the individual has been inside there, about six or eight hours later, the temperature is up to about 130 degrees. Wow. And we're not heating the vessel. The temperature raises because of all of that microbial action. So there's temperature probes in there and we're monitoring and we see that temperature go up and we know that all the right things are happening. So after a period of time goes by, the body becomes mulch, correct? It, so it's a two stage process that recomposes in that first stage inside the vessel is about five to seven weeks. Oh, okay. okay. And during that time, the temperature goes up and comes down and goes up and comes down. The state wants to see that temperature at 131 degrees for at least three consecutive days. Mm. We have no problem meeting that. You, our temperatures usually go a bit higher and stay higher for a longer period of time. And what you get by knowing that that's happening is that any pathogens that are in our body, you know, any coronavirus or, you know, any medication that we were taking, anything that's not going to be safe to mulch a maple tree Mm -hmm. is being broken down during that process of heat in the vessel. And when the temperatures dip a little bit, we just rotate the vessel really gently and slowly, sort of the way you do in, in the backyard. Right. Much, much slower and more gently, though. We rotate the vessel and that circulates things again. And then there's more microorganisms that can find each other and meet each other and raise that temperature back again. Just a reminder, we're talking with Laura Cassidy, who is with a company called Recompose, the first of its kind facility that composts human remains. Do you turn it back to the families? So if I'm going to come to you, and I'm planning, by the way, coming to you when my time comes. Great. Well, somebody's going to take you okay. there. 
Right. Absolutely. No, I'm sure they have a way of getting the body to, to their facility, but you'll turn it back over to my son and I could become a cherry tree absolutely, or something. Let, let's talk for a minute about the environmental issues here, because I was fascinated by okay. how much CO2 emissions are created by cremation and even burial. All the deleterious issues, funeral industry, I'm sure they're not happy about your industry. We can talk about that later. But what are the practical environmental issues here that make recompose or composting human remains smarter? It really is a low impact system. There's not a lot that is required for us to do this work. The vessel itself is monitored. And yes, there's machinery that turns that vessel when we need to circulate. It's really neat. We, you know, we do tours at the facility and when we take folks back into the greenhouse where we do the active composting, sometimes we kind of say, this is an average sound level. It's really, it's pretty quiet back here. You know, there's not a constant hum of machinery. There's not, there's, we're not really doing anything. We're just waiting patiently by while nature does something. Sometimes in the winter months, folks will come in for those tours and they'll say, what happens when the power goes out? Because I think we're just always thinking about that in the winter, you know, there just is not a lot of power needed to do what we do. We're monitoring the temperature. We have a computer system that looks it over so that our team can just check humidity levels and check that air is circulating properly and things like that. But it doesn't take a lot of energy. Once the composting part is finished, what happens with devices that might be in a body such as a defibrillator or some kind of like metal piece in a hip or something like that? Bones too. Bones probably don't break down as fast as flesh. Yep. Yep. Yeah, you're right. So you're you're getting us into the second stage of the process. I think I mentioned that the, it's a two-stage process at Recompose. And so that first stage is in the vessel for that five to seven weeks that we talked about. And then there's a screening process. We take everything out of the vessel and we screen it for any inorganic materials like what you're talking about, Penny. So anything metal, like a hip replacement, that sort of thing, those can often be recycled. There are medical recycling companies that will come and get those from us and kind of turn them into the next person's uh, hip replacement or something like that. But I do know of at least one family that asked for their person's hip replacement back and they made a really cool mobile for the backyard. (laughs) Wow. That is total recycling. I know. Yeah. Turning life into art, right? It, It sounds so logical. And yet there's a component to this I'm sure because humans, especially in Western culture, don't recognize death as something we all experience. Nobody wants to talk about it or plan. And you have an amazing history, Laura, of dealing with the grief. Do you have to convince people to do this? Favorite part of my job probably is talking to folks who are deciding that this is right for them. One of the most common things that people say is, you know, I, I never quite felt right about the other options. I just didn't want either of them. They both sound kind of not great, but I guess I'll do this one. But when I found out about human composting, I just felt so excited that this is something that I really want. There are so many different funny moments of almost like nervous laughter because people express that they're excited about it and that like this is something that fills them with a strange kind of excitement and joy that they well, it's a little hard to kind of rectify that. It feels a little weird to be excited about how you're going to end up after you're dead. But it's that I think it's the kind of peace and sort of groundedness that 
that you get. And, you know, people will often sort of say, oh, it's kind of like this dust to ashes to ashes, dust to dust kind of thing. Or, yeah. And for many people, they say it just makes sense, right. you know, or they'll say, especially around here in our area, people are such nature lovers and people that love to be outdoors. And so people will say things like, Oh, I've just been telling my partner my whole life, just put me out by the blackberry bushes when I die, you know, and it's really tends to make sense to people. Just a reminder, we're talking with Laura Cassidy with Recompose, whose base is here in Seattle, the world's, the world's first human composting company. So when the families or loved ones come in after the process is finished, does everybody come and claim the mulch? And do you know of what kinds of things they do with it? Yeah, so a couple different things happen in terms of the compost. I'm sorry, is mulch a bad word? Oh, compost is just more, it's more compost. correct. Okay. <laughs> I didn't want to be disrespectful. We don't, this is all, I mean, it's new. I feel like I need to laugh a little because. I do need to. I don't know. It's a tough subject, right? But I love it. I, I do love too. this idea. It's really cool getting to understand what some people do with the soil. And in many cases, that can be almost like another element of ceremony. And, you know, we're talking so much about how this, this can be a difficult subject subject and how we don't like to talk about these kinds of things. And I think that one thing about this process is that because it is so natural, because it helps one to, you know, feel a connection to the earth and to sort of feel a direct relationship with the earth. And because of the way that our system works and some of the offerings that we have in place along the way, we really do encourage opportunities for people to be involved in the process, to have really hands-on in, let's say, the services and the ceremonies. And we can talk about what that means. But certainly when it comes time to come and claim the soil, that can feel like another celebration, like another ceremony or ritual for people. Is it like a box? Yeah big barrel or I mean how much compost does a human body create generally yeah yeah let's get into that any of us that were to be composted we would create between one and one and a half cubic yards of soil so that's about what fits in the back of your average pickup truck oh it's a lot a lot so if we go back And remember that Katrina always imagined this as an urban solution you know not everybody living in cities has got space to spread a cubic yard of soil, right? So she knew, and part of the kind of evolution of the whole idea involved having a really elegant, meaningful, purposeful way for folks to use the compost. So we have land partnerships with entities who are doing regenerative reforestation. So right now our primary land partner is Bells Mountain, which is a 700 acre forest in the Southern part of the state. It's a place that was like ravaged by bad logging in the 30s and 40s. So folks secured a land trust there. You know, they know for certain that those 700 acres are always going to be a forest and they're repopulating it with all the important ecosystems. And when they do that, they need a lot of biomass. They need a lot of compost. And so families who aren't able to use all of the compost are able to donate this included in the price that will bring whatever amount of soil you want down to Bells Mountain. And as we go on, we're adding more land partners so that eventually folks will be able to almost choose from a menu, kind of what place sounds right to them. Well, this makes so much sense. Sure does. My God. Is it expensive? I mean, it's got to be less expensive than like the typical, like having to buy a casket and a plot and a headstone. I mean, clearly. 
But what are the costs compared to other options? And then what is the funeral industry saying about all this? So the cost that recomposes $7,000. To give some context to that, the national average for cremation is about $5,500. Then you're not buying a $10,000 casket. I mean, you know, let's let's not forget that oh, yeah. uh, whole part of the funeral industry. Uh, Laura, we're talking with Laura Cassidy of Recompose, the world's first human composting facility. Amazing. Where is all this going in terms of legalization and expansion around the world? And to the states, are they supervising you? Disposition and and end-of-life care is a state-regulated thing, so legalization happens on a state-to-state basis. Katrina was instrumental in having the the law passed here in Washington. That was 2019. And so as other states, you know, first of all, she had folks following along with her from, from early days. Like there was sort of in the middle of her science and study, the New York Times did a story about her saying like, you know, kind of this lady in Seattle seems to be on to something. So kind And over time, she really amassed a group of people that were following and part of her team and advising her. And she had something at that time called the Urban Death Project. So a lot of people who were, you know, environmentalists or folks interested in end-of-life care had been really following along for many years so that when it passed here in Washington, you could feel kind of a domino thing happening, folks in other states. And you'd probably be able to guess the states that happened soon thereafter. California, maybe? Yeah. Oregon, Oregon Colorado. Yeah. Co- the left coast. Yeah, the left coast. <laughs> and it's it's now also legal in Nevada, New Hampshire, and New York. And New York was a huge win. Again, right, we're thinking about urban environments, right? Places where there's a lot of people where we're running out of cemetery space. So it's amazing. Big win in New York. Right. The only states where it's currently operational are Washington and Colorado. So there's always kind of a lag between the time that folks pass a law and then they're going to kind of get all their regulations in order and they're going to figure out who are the governing bodies going to be and who's going to do the testing, who's going to do the this and the that. And so what we're finding is states are kind of bad pun all over the map in terms of how long it's taking them to move from legality into operations. And California is the most frustrating scenario right now. They they legalized in 2022, but said right away that they wouldn't be operational until 2027. They've said it's going to take them five years to, to get everything in order. But What's happening in this in-between phase is that folks are coming to us from out of state. I was going to ask you that. What if they wanted to bring a body? You know, they believed in this. They are. Would they be able to ship a body fast enough to you? Absolutely. So one third of our clients so far have come to us from out of state. Pretty big number. Yeah. How do they get the bodies there? It's pretty common. Yeah. Folks in the funeral industry will say, you know, people die in the wrong place all the time. So the funeral industry Um, is really used to transporting bodies from one funeral home to another. People die on vacation and have to be sent to their home or something like that. So Mm -hmm. pretty, you know, well working system in place for getting a body from one place to another. Yeah, it's just fine to have a body on ice for that period of time to get to us. And then, you know, once they land in SeaTac, they're in our catchment area. Our price includes pickup from Pierce, King, and Snohomish counties. So we'll go pick them up at the airport and take them into our care, and everything will work from there. Wow. So we talk to people about that a lot. And, you know, of course, having done so much of that out-of-state work, our funeral directors are are really, really good at 
all of the different ways that that can be handled because you know you can drive your person here too and people people don't know that like weekend at bernie's i mean exactly right okay. road trip with dad oh god <laughs> oh god put him in the back of the pickup so i i guess this is keeping you pretty busy yeah yeah absolutely wow I, laura let me ask you with all your experience in working with grief counseling and what what's has surprised you about trying to deal with this inevitable subject? Hmm. You know, what comes to mind for me is speaking of the kind of a domino effect. I think what I see in my work, the, the last thing that pushed you into grief, it's almost like it calls up these former griefs and everything wants to be dealt with then everything kind of comes knocking and says while we're here can we also find some peace for these things that kind of got shoved in a closet years back and i think that's because so much of our understanding around human psychology and you know what even your astrology can be cues to these kinds of things where we're just such a more educated culture right now in terms of how humans make it through this complicated thing called life one of the things that julie and i have talked about on this podcast before is the fact that in our Western culture, we are not good at planning for death. We are afraid of it, of course. It's creepy. Let somebody else take care of it. I won't be around to worry about it. I mean, I hear this from so many people that say, I'm not going to plan for my death. That's that's too macabre. That's too dark. But, you know, we're all going there. And we uh, interviewed a death doula who was fascinating yeah. and is, is becoming a very popular profession as well. But do you think that there's hope that in our Western culture that we're coming back to terms with bodies and death and planning for it and putting our arms around it? I do. I, I absolutely do. And I think, you know, even w- one of the things that you said that so many more people are taking death doula training right now, you know, there are these little things that we could see on the radar that are telling us, yeah, we're trying, we've taken it into our own hands to get a handle on this situation. And we're something in us is saying, we got to cycle back from this place that we got to. There are things that we do in our facility and ways that we intersect with death doulas and others in the industry that are absolutely about reinstating home funerals. They're about giving people the power back to keep their dead at home for a longer period of time. One of the things that that we'll do is take that phone call in the middle of the night that somebody has died and the conversation is not, okay, we can be there in 20 minutes. The conversation is, do you think you might like to keep the person there? You know, maybe we could come tomorrow sometime if you'd like to be with your person for a little bit longer. And those little incremental steps Mm -hmm. add up to something. going to have a rabbi on as a guest who kept his wife at home with him for several days and went through the ritual washing of the body at home. Yep. Sat with the body. And then um, like it was always done. Before. Like it was always mm-hmm. was done. I'm going back in certainly in Judaic history and other cultures and religions too. I'm one of those boomers and uh, I definitely have less time ahead than behind and I'm changing my will to come to you. So um, <laughs> signing up with Recompose. Recompose, absolutely. And told my son that's where I want to go. So you guys should come to our, our tours. It's such a neat experience. They're on Mondays and Saturdays and it's just the first 25 people that sign up for that date. And so it ends up being, you know, people that don't know each other, uh, spending an hour together learning about end of life. And it's so cool because we always start by asking people to kind of share, you know, what brought them in. And sometimes people will say, you know, I'm here because somebody in my family had just got a terminal diagnosis 
diagnosis. And sometimes people will just report, you know, I'm just a, I'm a master gardener and I love composting and I wanted to learn about this. And, and, you know, it's sort of all over the place. It tends to be pretty upbeat. It tends to be pretty engaged and excited. And we just spend that hour learning about the process together. Mm -hmm. We do virtual tours too. So anybody that's listening from far away, check out our website under the virtual tour section. And once a month, we lead people through, you know, with video camera and things like that. So you're welcome to join us that way as well. I'd love to have you. Uh, your website real quickly for people listening and we'll also put it on our social media sites yeah, great. Thank go ahead you. and tell us one more time what it is sure, it's, it's recompose.life dot life perfect. oh i love that. perfect that's yeah. wonderful thank you so much laura it's uh, been a pleasure me. to meet you and um i can't wait to come out and tour and see what you're doing firsthand i love that i would love that all right thank you Let's again so okay. much thank you so much okay thank take you care. laura cassidy from recompose A Couple of Dusty Muffins is very grateful to the Sabi Corporation, which sponsors us and allows us to keep on talking about all kinds of interesting things. You know, we love to hear from you and you've got things to say and want to tell us, right? So send us an email to coupleofdustymuffins at gmail.com. That's C-O-U-P-L-A, dustymuffins at gmail.com. I'm production director Clem Daniels. Thanks for listening.